I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and then walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty-gritty so that you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... John DuPont. Who was John DuPont? Well, he was the heir to the DuPont fortune, had all the means in the world, but he always failed at his goal of acceptance and recognition. In the 1980s, he created one of the most decorated Olympic wrestling training centers ever, Team Foxcatcher. They would win multiple national, world, and Olympic championships. His dreams would come at a great cost, however, his sanity and the murder of an innocent man. A museum of his loneliness. There are many disadvantages to having money, and that is, you are targeted by a great number of people who would like to take it away from you, said John DuPont. The DuPont family were minor French nobility that immigrated to the United States in the 1800s. The family was notable for assisting in the negotiations of the Treaty of Paris in 1783, which ended the American Revolutionary War and the Louisiana Purchase, in which the American government acquired French territory within the North American continent from Napoleon in 1803 for $15 million. Multiple family members served in the U.S. Senate in the 19th century, and one was governor of the state of Delaware. The family made its fortune in gunpowder and expanded its wealth to the chemical and automotive industries. Some of the most famous products the DuPont Corporation created were nylon, lucite, which was a plastic alternative to glass, Teflon, and lycra. John Eleuthere DuPont was born on November 22, 1938, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania the youngest son of William DuPont Jr. and Jean Leister Austin. His parents divorced when he was two and lived a very isolated, achingly lonely childhood, spending most of the time with his mother. His immense family wealth failed to buy what John wanted most, camaraderie, adoration, and self-worth. In one notable instance, his mother apparently would pay children to be John's playmates, which left him greatly disappointed and impacted his interactions with people for the rest of his life. Dude literally had paid friends. That's a... That's a whole level of, like, emotionally fucked up that I can't even really comprehend. Yeah, that's that's that guy from Pee-wee's Big Adventure level of fucked up rich kid, like, living a life that no person should ever have to live. And obviously, it's not the same as, like, living in abject poverty. That's a whole other set of problems. And if you're, I guess if you're ranking them, I guess at the end of the day, you'd choose to be rich. But I don't know, man. Like... Being a little kid and just having no friends and then finding out that your mom is paying your friends to play with you, that's that's rough. John was recalled by former classmates as a shy, gawky teenager. He never had a girlfriend and never attended school dances. Another recalled him as, quote, weird-looking, kind of creepy, with yellow teeth and walking all kinds of hunched over. Jesus, just fucking roast him. DuPont's family home was a replica of Montpellier, the 18th century home of James Madison. The house was built to amuse and shelter. His high school graduation party was held at his estate. The night culminated with John driving two Lincoln Continentals into his family's pond. People remarked that John was, quote, very, very happy in being the center of attention despite having to throw a fully catered party to have friends over to his house. Did you ever have anybody like this whenever you were a kid? I'm not going to pretend like I was some, like, super empathetic. Like, I'm not going to act like I was the only one, like, no, this is terrible or whatever. 
But whenever I was in high school, there was this kid who actually remember his full name and I wouldn't say it anyway, but his name was Eric something. And he was he was a rich kid and a, a bunch of people within my friend circle hung out with him exclusively because he would pay for everything. Like he would just go out and he would just buy everybody like a Subway sandwich. Like he would go out after school and go with him to Subway and he would just pay for food for everybody. And and then he would have like things at his house, like parties or whatever, where there would just be all this stuff that he would pay for. And he would like go out to dinner with people and pay for the dinner or whatever. And everybody was like seemingly just perfectly happy with hanging out with this guy because he would pay for this stuff, even though he was just number one, he was just a dick and he was annoying and he was just not a like not likable at all. And I didn't like hanging out with him. I didn't like being around him at all. Everybody else was seemingly fine with just hanging out with this guy that he was that was just like objectively unlikable because he would pay for everything. I didn't really want to do that. I, I remember one time I took advantage of it and he bought I went to one of these things where he bought Subway for everybody. But I didn't really I, something about it, the idea of hanging out around with this guy and so he'd ba- pay for things was just weird to me. I didn't really want to do it. And it wasn't even necessarily that I was like kind and I was like, I don't want to take advantage of somebody for their money or whatever. It was more that just this guy was so annoying and I disliked him so much that it wasn't worth it to me. Okay, first, I want to say anyone who's a friend of the boy is a friend of me. <laughs> you would have totally, you would have been like, what's up, best friend? <laughs> let me, so let me finish. Let me finish. Let me just say, I love me some boy. Sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I need to eat bread that tastes like paper. I want to have some boy. Second of all, Spandrew, I know you don't know me that well. But if Andrew would hear, he would instantly know that I hate it whenever anyone tries to give me something. I don't I don't like I don't like accepting things from people I don't know because I feel like I'm indebted to them. I, even if there's not I'm always I'm always very wary of social interactions where people are because I've had stuff like this happen to me before where people seem, oh, no, I'm just doing this nice thing. It's just a nice thing. Don't worry about it. Just blah, 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 blah. And cut to whatever, six months later, where there's some sort of disagreement or friction and then it's well why are you being like this remember that one time when i gave you that thing i really don't like this i would never have gone to the boy with this person i would have waited for that person and all of his little gaggle of friends to leave and then i would have got my toasted footlong italian bmt on white that's totally what it was too like he had all these people that were i guess friends that would hang out with him and he would buy all kinds of stuff and he and he totally it was like a license to say whatever he wanted to anybody and just kind of be a dick. And it was almost like he had this like he had this crew of like <laughs> lackeys or something. I remember one time in high school, one time in high school, I was playing like a, a card game at a gaming store with one of my friends and we were in a tournament and my friend had this new girlfriend and the girlfriend and I didn't really get along that well because I don't I don't trust fake ass people and this person was a very fake ass person I like it when people have hard edges I like it when they're honest I like it when people are if you got a weird opinion or if you're kind of curt I'm like I know where you stand I might not agree with you but I like the fact that you 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 have this weird little quirk about you or you're kind of left of center I don't I don't trust people who are kind of squeaky clean because I know that everybody's got darkness and the people who try to be perceived as squeaky clean have the most darkness. So I don't want to fuck with that shit. So we're there. We're playing our stupid little card game. <laughs> this girl brings me. I'm not even joking. She brings me an ice cream cone. She's like, ah, I got you guys ice cream. And I was like, I don't what? I don't want to. 
I'm not taking this from you. This is weird. What do you, what do you mean? I'm just going to sit here and eat this ice cream cone? I'm going to just stop what we're doing and like lick an ice cream cone for 20 minutes? What the fuck is this? You sound like Kanye West. I hate it when I wake up on a plane and there's a water bottle and I'm like, now I'm responsible for this water bottle. No, man, because it's it was it was nakedly this. It was we are not you. You don't like me. I don't like you, but I'm trying to give you this thing to make it socially unacceptable for you to like not like me. It was a very weird social dynamic. And I don't remember what happened to the ice cream, but I didn't eat it. So I don't know where it went. Well, in in the spirit of your interest in people being direct and giving their weird opinions. Here's here's my hottest take I think I might have. So everybody talks about how, and m- mostly it's a joke, but it's, it's one of those sort of ways of interpreting something in pop culture that kind of catches on and becomes a bit of a meme. Kind of like saying that Die Hard is a Christmas movie or whatever. But most people say, most people make the same joke or the same observation that Beauty and the Beast is a story about Stockholm syndrome and bestiality that this guy abducts this woman, holds her hostage and gets her to fall in love with him. And then she just fucks an animal. And the first part of that is true. I think where's the problem. The first part of that is true. I think, I think that there's some dicey stuff about the story of beauty and the beast in terms of the fact that he like keeps her locked up and the Stockholm syndrome aspect of it. But the only reason why bestiality is wrong is because an animal can't talk, so it can't consent to anything, and because animals have the brain development of a child. If an animal had a fully developed adult human brain and could talk and consent, there's nothing wrong with Belle fucking that monster. How the fuck did you get to let's have sex with dogs from I don't like being given ice cream? That's my you said you liked. I, that's my hottest take. You said you like people a, who are direct that is and honest a, that and have is weird a opinions. Crazy. Pivot. That's my hottest take. That is I'm, a. I'm laying out my hottest take on the line. I'm I'm advancing our relationship like years because I'm just I'm laying out my hottest possible take right here right now. That is the craziest fucking shit you've ever said to me. You're just like pro dog sex. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? He's a guy. He's a guy that got turned into a monster. Well, one, I don't I don't care about anyone who says that Beauty and the Beast is about is pro bestiality because it's not literally about that. It's a fucking metaphor. Like it's about it's not he's not she's not one. There's nobody involved. They're fictional characters Two, It's not someone actually having sex with a dog. It's the metaphor of this individual has lost themselves and the love and compassion and connection of a human being can tame all of the inner turmoil that we all experience. It's a way for people to try and connect with one another through the empathetic pathways of storytelling. It's not actually about fucking a dog. I agree. You, however, you, however, are on some reverse Michael Vick shit right now where you're just like, you know what? Let's all just fuck these dogs, bruh. I just said if the animal had a fully developed human adult brain and could talk, there's no there's nothing morally wrong with it. So does that mean that you're in this scenario? Are dogs still kept as pets? Are they like weird human no, quadruped I've, slaves? I said, like, what is this? I said nothing about dogs. I said if an animal 
a specific animal had a fully developed human adult brain and could talk. <laughs> this is so crazy. You could do whatever you wanted with it as long as it consented and there would be nothing morally wrong with it. I never, I said nothing about a weird science fiction reality where all dogs ha- like could talk or whatever. I said if there was a beast such as the beast in Beauty and the Beast who is a guy who got turned into a monster... Yeah, but that's but that's a different thing though, because that's oh god. All right, yeah, sure, fine. <laughs> I I respect you for coming. I respect you for coming to the table with such a hot take. But Jesus Christ, <laughs> this is why we're friends. <laughs> However, if you were just like I am a Wonder Bread person and I don't like anything that's not popular, my favorite movie is The Godfather. We wouldn't have recorded a shitload of episodes of this podcast. Yes. Exactly. And and all I'm saying is if if your favorite movie is The Godfather, that's fine. Also, if you had romantic feelings about an adult monster who could talk, that's also fine. After graduating high school, John would go through episodes of deep interest and a passion, gain control over it, and then quickly would withdraw from it. One of John's passions was natural history, and his collection of birds and seashells filled the Delaware Museum of Natural History, which was a museum he built. He enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania and later transferred to the University of Miami, earning a degree in biology and later a PhD in natural sciences at Villanova University. He had a Philippines parrot and Mexican sparrow, which were identified by him and later named after him. So this will come up, I think, more throughout the episode, and certainly we haven't not gotten to the zenith of this, but I just wanted to bring this up right here in the beginning. We we talk about this thing a lot, and we've talked about it on recent episodes. The Jim Carrey zone, the 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 tippy top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When you've gotten so rich and you have so accomplished and conquered and moved past all of the aspects of the human condition and satisfaction of life's physical and psychological comforts that you have to go to some other realm to set to to continue on your journey it's like you either you either just close your eyes and die or you become like a fucking sound therapist or something but what happens when you're already there when you're born what happens when you've already gone into the jim carrey zone as a child have you have you seen currently jim carrey is on the press tour for sonic yeah. the hedgehog 2 have you seen that clip that yes. he said? I saw the one about the Will Smith and Chris Rock thing or the something one, else. No, the, he he said he did an interview where he was somebody was asked somebody asked him what are you doing next and he said, "Well, you know, I think I'm going to retire." And they're like, "What? You're so young. You're going to retire from acting?" He was like, "Yeah. I have enough money. I have enough. I've done enough. This is probably something you'll never hear another actor ever say or admit, but I am enough and I'm just really enjoying my painting and I'm going to go away and pursue that. Just going to do that. I'm not, I don't need to I don't need to do this stuff anymore. And it was really interesting to me because he said things like that before, but they were much more weird and aggressive and emotionally lost as opposed to this version of it, which quite frankly, I don't believe and I think is him being instructed by one of his publicists to say something that is in line with the bizarre emotional kind of Jim Carrey zone, basically addressing the Jim Carrey zone construct, but in a way that is constructive and makes him not appear as weird. I, I feel like 
And this is something you might never hear another celebrity say as long as time exists. Uh, I have enough. I've done enough. I am enough. It depends if, you know, if, if the, the angels bring some sort of, you know, script that's, you know, written in gold ink that says to me that it's going to be really important for people to see, I might, I might continue down the road, but I'm taking a break. I really like my quiet life and I really love putting paint on canvas and I really love uh, my spiritual life. Oh my God, the script, it's written in golden ink and it's been handed to me by an angel. It's Sonic the Hedgehog 3. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's 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 wild. They kind of address it in that movie, The Brothers Bloom, how Rachel Weiss's character, she's like this rich person who just like lives in this mansion and she has all these hobbies and she's like mastered all these things because she just has nothing else to do or whatever. But like this kid was just like so already in the Jim Carrey zone that he discovered two birds like yeah. in his early yeah. like 20s. How fucking surreal is that? Because he just had because he just he just had nothing else to do. He got hyper fixated on these obsessions with these little things. And then he ended up discovering two birds that were named after him. Birds. What are you going to do with your fortune, your, your Bruce Wayne style billionaire fortune? You come from this dynastic wealth. You can do anything. I think I'm going to look at some birds. Yep. Yeah. And it also makes you wonder like how many things in this world, these accomplishments are like, they wouldn't actually be that hard if you just had unlimited access to money. John DuPont also introduced triathlon competitions, biking, swimming, and riding to the United States in 1966 and is called the father of the triathlon. He was considered a quote, bright prospect for the 1960s Olympics but was not able to compete due to injuries. In the world of sports, John won one of the biggest laurels in 1965 by winning the Australian National Pentathlon Championship. Robert Marbutt, president of the United States Modern Pentathlon Association, said that any American could have gone down there and won. While he was never able to qualify for an Olympic team, citing injuries, he did manage the U.S. pentathlon team for the 1976 Montreal Olympics. Which all this is, all this is kind of crazy because they definitely do not telegraph this in Foxcatcher. John DuPont is just presented as from the get-go, he's like this super rich guy that just has this like this sort of this exhibitionist interest in wrestling to the point where he wants to bank bankroll this team and get the US kind of on the map of Olympic wrestling. And it just I mean, for reasons that are obvious, just time economy and stuff like that, it just does not touch on the fact that he like discovered birds that were named after him and then had this whole career where he brought several Olympic sports to the United States and then almost was an Olympic champion himself all out of boredom. Yeah, you got to you got to find something to do. In the 1980s, DuPont shifted his focus to wrestling. In 1985, he donated money to Villanova University to create a varsity wrestling team and serve as the head coach. DuPont then built a state-of-the-art training facility within his estate, renamed Foxcatcher Farms, in honor of his father's racing stables. The goal of this facility was to attract and train Olympic-level wrestling talent. It was one of the only training facilities of its kind in the United States. John's association with wrestling would finally lead to his experiencing the closeness he always craved, but ultimately, it would end in the Shakespearean tragedy of madness and murder. Act 2. 
gold rubbed off on gold. I think this might be the first time this observation has ever been made, but John DuPont was like the Olympic wrestling Professor X. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird, too, because Professor X has this uncanny, bizarre attraction. Uncanny, no pun intended. Bizarre. He has an astonishing attraction to young people from all walks of life who have this innate ability to do yabada yabada and john dupont is like his madness was giant sized and the the sound of the bullet ripping through skin was so hard to describe that it was adjectiveless when those cops came their badges were they were clothed in blue but their badges were gold blue and on teams blue and gold i don't know i'm really stretching here to make teams blue and gold make a thing but doesn't really work because you know the 90s x teams were the blue and the gold team. He was he was Professor X. He was Professor X. He was he was Professor X. He was Professor X with a little bit more hair. And not even that much more gay. Like Professor X I know Stan Lee wanted Professor X to be like really hot to trot for Jean Grey, but come on. Lalandra, Moira McTaggart, mm, I don't know. I feel like it makes more sense if he was with Beast. It's really funny because I had not thought of it either while either watching the documentary or the feature film version of this or just kind of learning about John DuPont's life after I kind of got interested in the subject. Like I, I hadn't thought about that at all, but you're totally right. Like dynastic wealth, giant, weird palatial estate out in the middle of nowhere, retrofitted to be a school to serve this very niche community, having a weird kind of very not so subtle Freudian would be sexual relationship with a lot of the people at his beck and call. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, and, it, and it's it's almost like it's like what Professor X would be in real life, like the thing that they kind of touched on a little bit in the like in the in the first class continuity of movies. And they might have touched on this on other comic on other X-Men comics. I'm like, I'm not a connoisseur. So like there, there, there might be a whole run that like examined this that I just don't know about. But they kind of talked about it in the, in the first class movies and they kind of examined it in the the those newer the newer X-Men comics. With, what, what, what was that most recent? Which What, what are you trying to get at? I, I'm not sure. Are you saying the, the perennial thing where they say that Professor X is evil or fucked up? Not, not, not that he's evil or fucked up, but it's, 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 it's the thing that Professor X would be in real life if it wasn't idealized to be a character in a piece of fiction, which is that he there's a duality to the idea of wanting to help people where you cannot you can't necessarily separate it from like a God complex. Where it's like in 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 and of itself, when you when you think of yourself as this person who can become this like mentor for these marginalized people, you kind of can't separate it from the fact that you kind of think of yourself as, oh, I'm the savior to these people. And the line between those two things is like often blurred in real life. And I think that's definitely as we get into this, that's definitely what this ends up being is like he 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 thinks he he fixates on a problem he identifies a problem that nobody else is trying to solve and then he thinks that he can just throw like infinite money and and influence at it to become the savior of this thing whether or not he genuinely had a passion for it or if he just saw like oh there's this issue there's this problem nobody's trying to solve it i could corner the market on solving this problem just by using my money and then I can come out of it establishing a legacy that I would not have had because I live I live such 
deeply in the shadow of my family's legacy that like this is my only shot at having my own legacy is identifying this weird little niche thing and becoming its savior or whatever, basically buying your way into being a legend. When John turns eye to the sport of wrestling, other family members largely disapproved of the sport as, quote, ruffian behavior. To John, winning was all that mattered, and that was directly tied to how his mother saw him. In his mind, he never lived up to her expectations. John's mother, Jean, at a wrestling dinner event would make comments like, quote, I just wish John wouldn't be involved with these people. This is not what John should be doing with his life. John wanted the best wrestlers to be able to beat the Soviet Union as American wrestlers lacked the training facilities, housing, or support that the communist nation was providing to its wrestlers. And this is this is kind of another like interesting little wrinkle that's weirdly comic related is it reminded me of this thing that we may have talked about on the show, but we've certainly talked about it in 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 life. The idea that like in some other countries like France in particular, comics are this thing that's like sort of highly respected in the society. And therefore there's a lot more resources that are, that are allocated towards the making of comics because they're an important cultural staple of the country. And it's not just like something that's relegated to being thought of as a kid's throwaway piece of entertainment. So artists in, in France, they get all these grants that to basically live off of, to do their craft. And we've talked about this before, but one of this is just my frame of reference. I'm sure there's plenty of others, but the, the French comic that you, you've told, you've showed me or told me about, I don't even remember what it's called, but it was like this comic where every panel is just lovingly just a, its own painting. Oh, you're talking about uh, Requiem Vampire Night by, I th- believe the artist's name is Ledois, Le 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 I don't yeah, know how to pronounce it. Uh, yeah, it's you, written by Pat Mills and illustrated by Ledois. Le, Le Le yeah, and you told me about that and you showed me it and it's like, this this guy, like, he, what he's, he's been like 10 years or something like that yeah, he's, drawing they've, they've this comic. Made, yeah, they've made 11 40-page issues over 10 years or maybe 15 years. And it's it's about a Nazi soldier in World War II who dies and goes to hell in order only to uncover the fact that there's an there's a war raging in hell between the forces of not really good and evil it's more like just the forces of evil and evil for the control of the afterlife and the way people die impacts the way they get brought back in the afterlife and because he was a lecherous uh white supremacist he gets brought back as a vampire where he like needs blood to survive and he ends up becoming this kind of he ends up basically like shunning the the war in this afterlife because he's just like, this is fucking crazy. I don't want to do any of this. And so the books are all about him trying to navigate the different factions of the levels of evil in the afterlife. And the, all of the illustrations are these kind of Boschian debauchery and mass chaos and carnage. And he basically did one 40 page story a year for a decade, more or less, which is like, you know, that's like spending ostensibly if it's a 40 page story, you're spending more than a week per page. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just nuts. They're they're amazing, amazing, amazing books. Yeah. And and, and unlike here where and this isn't just true of comics, but it's true of everything. 
your your worth and your like value is is determined by like how much shit you can crank out in like the shortest amount of time. So a comic book artists, it's all about like how how fast can you crank out these pages or whatever. And you're just trying to get paid. So you're just trying to make as much work as possible in the shortest amount of time as possible. So you can keep getting work and you can keep getting paid for it. And that's that's kind of how everything is here. It's all very commodified. But, you know, it, the only in that environment would somebody be able to do that where it's less about like how much shit can you crank out? And it's like, we want this work to exist. And so you have the time and the breathing room to develop this out and spend and spend a decade making this book and making 40 pages a year as opposed to 40 pages a month or whatever, the, whatever the fuck. And it's weird because this oddly reminded me of that because the whole thing with John DuPont getting into wrestling and starting Foxcatcher Farms was that rest Olympic wrestling was highly valued in the Soviet Union to the point where the, the, the state would basically pay these wrestlers a highly livable wage to take care of their families and basically be on a, a state payroll in order to just solely focused on de- becoming the best athletes in the world. They were they were just made by the government to spend all of their time honing the craft of re- wrestling so that they could dominate at the Olympics. Whereas in the United States, there was just no focus or care put into Olympic wrestling. So we just we had no real contenders for Olympic wrestling that could compete with the Soviet Union. And John DuPont's whole thing was like, I want to create an environment that mimics what the Soviet Union is doing for Russian wrestlers, but privatize it and just pay for these wrestlers to live on my estate and just spend their days becoming the best wrestlers they can possibly be and finding the best teachers to teach them and everybody just not having to worry about money, not having to worry about making a living, just get up every day and wrestle all day and and until we actually have a team that can contend with the Russians. And it just it just oddly reminded me of of that of the the dichotomy between the com- comics industry here and abroad and other industries in the United States versus abroad. John believed that quote, America needed to get back to what it was. And it was his duty to give back to the patriots of this country. He transformed his 800-acre estate, Foxcatcher Farms, into a state-of-the-art facility to train wrestlers, swimmers, and pentathletes. John donated over 3 million to the Olympic wrestling team. He recruited Mark Schultz, who won the Olympic gold in wrestling in 1984 and won the world championship in 1985. Mark Schultz won the 1988 world championship and eventually became the brand ambassador for Team Foxcatcher, which was used to attract a lot more wrestlers to the farm. So basically, banking off of what I said before, essentially, the Mark Schultz and his brother were like basically where it was at for American wrestlers. They were kind of like the only people that were accomplished within the Olympics and the only people that had like any kind of name notoriety from from the United States. So it, it, would, it would be like if going back to comics, just because we've been talking about it, it would be like if there was just like in, in the United States, there was just Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane and there was no other comic book artist that anybody knew from the U.S. I mean... Not that far off. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and, uh, which oddly, it goes back to my thing that there's this weird parallel here where it's it's oddly similar to me. I don't know why that, why that was the thing that popped into my mind, but it just mapping it on, it's just so oddly similar. Foxcatcher Farms was not just a place to train the athletes. They also moved their families to the farm. It became their whole identity. John DuPont opened up his house to the wrestlers. He set up $250,000 trust funds for the top wrestlers, 
deeded 10 acres of his farms to them and gave them lavish gifts of boats and cars. Yeah, just come just come, uh, come down and wrestle for me in my living room. Just wrestle on the floor in front of me. Just, just pin another man to the floor and let me watch and I'll give you some money. No, your, your, your family could come too, I guess. But just pin this dude to the ground and let me watch you pin this dude to the ground like every day and I'll just uh, pay you like a living wage and um, maybe I'll even give you a car. Yeah, I mean, the, the weird thing about it, though, is just that description just then. The whole thing is it, it's it's a it's a communist system couched within privatized capitalism. It's this guy being like, I'm going to create this communist ecosystem where people can just have a living wage and have a place to stay and have all the amenities of life and just spend their days dedicated to honing this craft. But it's all just privately bankrolled, which is also literally what the Soviet Union was. It was a communist society couched within what was actually an oligarchical capitalist system that didn't function at all because it was not actually fulfilling the ideals of what a communist society is or is supposed to be. It was talked about a lot in the QAnon episode two, I think. The idea that the whole idea of a socialist utopia in the Soviet Union was all just kayfabe. In reality, it was just a bunch of rich oligarchs. But but this is like a microcosm of that. Like somebody who thinks that they can generate a communist society by just like paying for it. Very odd. Only in America. John did not have many friends, and the fact that they were making him feel a part of the community was what he wanted. He viewed the wrestlers as more his family than his own family. He liked being around the champions. For John, his motto was, gold rubbed off on gold. The wrestlers at Foxcatcher Farms were required to watch films that lauded his accomplishments as an athlete and naturalist. Mr. DuPont would often grapple with his wrestlers, and they would let him win. Even his competitions in master-level tournaments were rigged to ensure he won. In one event, after he defeated a wrestler in Bulgaria, spectators showered him with flowers, lifted him, and carried him triumphantly around the arena. Kurt Angle, an Olympic wrestling gold medalist, commented, I think he actually thought he won. We thought it was fun. It made us feel good to see him having fun. The funny thing about this is that all of this stuff is left out of the movie, but they have a golden opportunity because Steve Carell played John DuPont and John DuPont was literally Michael Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Michael Scott. He had no friends. He wanted all these people in this community to just be his friends. He was just like making them be his friends by association of being in this like work ecosystem with him. And interactions with him were these farcical, like weird, surreal things where everybody was just having to play along with these strange situations that he contrived to make himself feel like he had friends because he was the boss and they just had to. And they and they had Michael Scott playing him. And yet they didn't touch on any of this stuff. Seems like a missed opportunity. Just a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a missed opportunity. Like instead of just the movie Foxcatcher, I wish they would have just made Foxcatcher a show that was just The Office, but it was John Dupont with a bunch of wrestlers. I mean, that sounds that sounds way more entertaining than the than The <laughs> Office to me. <laughs> John also struggled with the failure of a lifelong dream to marry and have a child. Despite only dating a handful of women in the past, he wedded Gail Wink. After a short courtship in September of 1983, he met her in 1982 as she was an occupational therapist who treated him for a broken hand. The marriage only lasted five months. Mrs. Wink DuPont stated that John had become deeply concerned about either of them being kidnapped and wanting to know her exact movements at all times. He did not want her going to the same places at the same time every week. 
He would descend into alcohol-fueled rages, throwing Gail into the fireplace, choking her, threatening her with a knife, and pushing her out of a car. What ended up being the final straw for Gail was when John entered her bedroom and turned the television channel to patriotic music. When she asked for him to turn it down, he withdrew a pistol from the dresser drawer and placed it to her temple, stating, You know what they do with Russian spies? She later moved out and filed for divorce. She was countersued for abuse. They later settled out of court. So... I am not excusing any of this horrible behavior, but I feel like it's pretty clear what's happening subconsciously with John DuPont here. Externally, society is telling him he needs to get married and have a kid. His mother and waspy ass family are like, you need to get married and have a kid. You got to be a productive member of society. You got to do the thing that people do. It's very obvious that he had a deep and abiding love for the male form and really enjoyed male camaraderie, which is about as close as he could get to admitting to himself what he really wanted. And when he finally did cross the line into becoming a married man with a woman, everything about him was like rebelling against that. And he was obviously like having an internal conflict of like, I can't do this. I don't want this, but also I do want this because this is what society tells me I should want. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, like you said, not excusing it. It's kind of like the Kevin Spacey d- defense where it's like th- whenever that whole thing came out, his his defense was basically like, oh, well, I'm gay. And there is something to that of just a life of repression. It's going to lead to some horrible behavior, likely. You're keeping all of that in, lo- locked away and you're fighting against the core of your being. And that's the same thing with like Catholic priests and things like that. But that that doesn't mean like, oh, it's it, that's why it's, it's not like an excuse of like, oh, well, it's just because he was sexually repressed or, oh, he was fighting against this thing that was his true self or whatever. It's a horrible fucked up thing. And some of it is like the things that society hoists, foists upon us and forces us to conform with. And some of it is just you got to be true to yourself and not let yourself repress these things to the point where you're doing these horrible fucked up things. Yeah, it's it's terrible. It's a it's a it's a horrible thing that society and families push you to repress these things that are your true self and like i said it's not to excuse it he's sort of master of his own destiny he's responsible for his own actions but this is sort of what that kind of thing leads to but yeah i I agree with you i think that that's that's pretty spot on i mean his his obsessions were all just about these olympic sports that just heavily featured aggressive interactions with the male form i mean even Even the science stuff that he was interested in, there's some sort of subconscious metaphor there of being obsessed with birds and flight and fleeing from things, but also leaving the earthly plane and not having to deal with the rest of humanity and going up into the sky and being able to see a greater picture and appreciate things outside of yourself because you're looking down upon everything. There's a lot of subtextual stuff happening in like all of his obsessions. Yeah. And just going back to the Professor X thing of just, he just, he wanted to be the mentor to all these young men and just be seen as this like authority figure. And he, and as we're, as we'll get into in the coming rest of the episode, overstepping that boundary of, oh, I'm not just, I'm not just a patron of this art and I'm like funding it because I think it's important. I actually want you to find me as like some kind of like authority figure in this. And he would sort of like overstep his boundaries and try to coach these people, even though he didn't know how to be a coach. He was not, he didn't know what he was talking about. And he ends up butting heads with, with the Schultzes because of this. And it's because it all goes back to the fact that he wasn't just passionate about wrestling, becoming more of a respected art form in the, in the United States. He just wanted to have a cult of young men who thought he was 
God, basically. For Mark Schultz, John's obsession with him as the ideal freestyle wrestler was too much. John would not leave Mark alone, and that made him very uncomfortable and would continually invade his privacy. John would say that he liked being around champions. For John, his motto was gold rubbed off on gold. Due to DuPont's interference and not being able to fully train, Mark lost his matches in the 1988 Olympics and he left Foxcatcher Farms and never wrestled again. In 1988, John's Villanova wrestling program was shut down due to a lawsuit by a Villanova wrestler, an assistant wrestling coach who said that John made sexual advances to them. The suit was later settled out of court. Though the worst blow of all was the loss of his mother. Yeah, I mean, imagine that. Imagine that you, your entire life, it's kind of like the, 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 the sunk cost fallacy thing where you have spent the majority of your life because you cannot satisfy the, your, your, your deeper truth and, and the things that you actually, you know, care about because they are not socially acceptable or accepted within your family, you have to shape your entire life around attempting to gain the approval of this person, your family or the specific family member. And in this case, it was his mom. And you've 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 put so much energy into creating a false sense of who you are to satisfy and please this person that you've spent years, decades crafting this fake kayfabe version of yourself just to gain the approval of this person and then she dies before she gives you the approval so you've spent your whole life crafting pushing yourself away from your true self abandoning who you actually are and crafting this fake version of yourself just to get this thing that you can never now can never have and yeah that's imagine just how psychologically shattering that is and also just the only thing that can kind of help people get through grief is more human connection, right? But John DuPont didn't have any human connections. So it's it's just like the, the he's this little tiny balloon that's tethered to the earth with a string and once that string's cut, it's just he goes off and he's just floating out there and it has very negative consequences as we are about to find out. Yeah, and when and when, you know, it, losing a loved one is difficult, unfathomably difficult for anybody, but when but you know at least at the end of the day if you are true to yourself and you and you are who you are and you don't live in service of validating another person or or being validated by another person rather at least you 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 are who you are it'll be you know a, a terribly painful experience that you will never fully recover from but you're not lost in the world without that person you you always are tethered to the fact that you are who you are so, like you said, if you if you've completely abandoned that and you've tied your entire self-worth to the validation of this one person when they're when they when they inevitably are gone and they have not given you that validation or even if they end up even if they do give you that validation, it might still be the same. You you have no you have no purpose because you've made your entire purpose about seeking the approval of somebody that just doesn't exist anymore. In 1989, after Mark left Foxcatcher Farms, John DuPont recruited Mark's brother, Dave Schultz, who won the gold in wrestling in the 1984 Olympics and gold and silver world championships. The Schultz brothers were the only American brothers to win gold medals in the same Olympics and win world and Olympic championships. Failing to place any medals in 1992 left John in a deep depression. He withdrew to his estate, dismissing his longtime aides the 20-year standing training invitation to the local police, and the engagements he had with any women. This is something that we haven't talked about yet. John DuPont was so fucking breaded that he would go on hunting trips with the local police department. Like, not, not just, like, a couple cops, 
the police department. They would all go out there on hunting expeditions on his palatial estate. And that's how he kind of got around some of the weirder shit that happened out there. Because he would just be like, ah, all the police guys are like my friendy friends. Yeah, and he also he also paid he he donated a bunch donated a bunch of money to them. So they there was like renovations to like their the police precinct and all these things that he personally paid for, which comes into play later as we'll talk about like towards the end. But yeah, he essentially not quite to a a a, a John McAfee level of literally like having the police in his back pocket where they would like do his bidding, but he kind of. Like, he kind of almost had the police on his payroll, so to speak. He began always carrying a gun on him, accusing those closest to him of betraying him and hiring people to x-ray the columns and walls to ensure that people or spirits were not tunneling into the house. By 1996, John began cutting all ties to wrestling. He stopped all donations to the Wrestling Federation by June of 1995, and his name was removed from his Foxcatcher warm-up suits. So, basically, the when he wanted to start Foxcatcher Farms... There was these two brothers who, like I kind of said before, were the only like names in American wrestling. And he he wanted he wanted Dave Schultz to be to come out and be a teacher because he was basically like the best wrestling coach in the United States. And also maybe kind of like the best one in the world, because apparently he was the only American wrestler who was respected in the Soviet Union. Like they liked him there. And so he want like that was that's like the that was like the 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 white whale or like the goose that laid the golden egg of of getting a wrestling coach if you wanted to start this communist wrestling utopia. But he didn't want to do it because at first he got a weird vibe off of it, and he was also doing coaching in all these schools, and he thought that was more important. He was more he was he was he thought it was more important to go around to these schools and teach these young kids rather than fulfill this weird rich guy's fantasy or whatever, regardless of how much he was paying him. So he kind of got like the runner up of his brother who was just not nearly as he was like a he was like a talented wrestler, but he was just he was not nearly as accomplished or renowned as John. So it was almost kind of like, oh, I couldn't get your brother. So do you want to come out here and kayfabe that you are as good as your brother and kind of like play pretend that you could actually fulfill like what your brother has already fulfilled. So he brings him out there. And so Mark Schultz is like, he's coming up there and he's like, yeah, like I'm going to prove myself. And he was very frustrated by the fact that he went out there. And in reality, it was like a weird, like vertigo situation where John basically just wanted him to put on the wig and pretend like he was his brother. And because of that, and because of the fact that he didn't low key, didn't actually really respect him. He would undermine him. He tried to tell him how things should go. He tried to kind of like step in and coach the team himself. And he would just wouldn't listen to him. And so Mark got frustrated and he basically quit in a rage. So at that point, whenever he quit, then John DuPont was basically like, hey, Schultzy boy, <laughs> Schultzy babes. I know that you said no to me when I first asked you to come out here and teach my stu- wrestling students. But I tried out your brother. Didn't work out. So what What do you say? What do you say? You want to tr- you want to maybe give me a second chance? And uh, Mark Schultz is basically like, no, bro, this guy's fucking crazy. Like he's he sucks. Do not go out to this guy. But Dave was basically like it was that more of a situation where it made more sense for him to try this out. And he kind of low key was like, yeah, my brother says that he's hard to work with, but my brother is kind of hard to work with. So I kind of feel like maybe he's the problem. And I feel like I could probably do a little bit better of a job at this. 
So he goes out there, he agrees to do it, and then he actually kind of thrives. Like he actually he actually forms like kind of a close relationship with John DuPont and they kind of become friends to the point where some people say that Dave Schultz was John DuPont's only friend. And they kind of form this weird little family out there where Dave Schultz has got his family out there. They're living on the estate and he's coaching the kids. And John DuPont is like a fucking weirdo, but like he's my weirdo kind of thing. That's 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 how this whole thing rides out. John DuPont. No, more like John DeHomey. Exactly. To the point of of his detriment, because because he's so willing to kind of make it work with John DuPont because he likes this situation, he likes the job and he's and he's so in the mindset of I can make this work. I can do good at this job. He and a bunch of the other wrestling coaches at Foxcatcher Farms, they kind of like slowly John DuPont's weirdness and increased like mental illness is just getting normalized to them like they they just increasingly are just like yeah but that's just that's just kind of john that's john being john and they they wave they hand wave any of his weird little behaviors as john being john and it's just an established thing that john's like a fucking weirdo so throughout that entire time his behavior is getting more and more concerning he's getting more and more paranoid and they're kind of just not taking it seriously because it's been slowly normalized to them which leads to where we're at right now, which is John's descent into madness. John DuPont was displaying a variety of, quote, troubling signs in the late 1970s. One time when firing at geese in his pond, he almost hit a 12-year-old boy. The shooting occurred, according to a former swim coach, because Mr. DuPont was upset. After all, the fish were not biting in his pond. So he got mad that he couldn't catch any fish. He started just wildly shooting at some geese, and he almost killed the boy. And this was all well before any of this happened, before the Schultzes ever got involved, before Foxcatcher Farms as a wrestling utopia was even a thing, he was already kind of like displaying genuinely troubling behavior that seemed to point to his mental state not being all there. He had infrared ghost finding cameras installed throughout the house, thought the walls were moving, and the clocks on treadmills were, quote, taking him back in time. He also started talking to the walls, believing animals would emerge from them and required the wrestlers to chase them out of the walls. Dave Schultz and the other wrestlers within Team Foxcatcher wanted to get John help and accompanied him to the Betty Ford Clinic for his drinking and cocaine problem. Cocaine. Yeah, he he was he was deep into the he was riding the white dragon for sure. A lot of this was cocaine fueled. A pastor had to speak to Mr. DuPont about his obsession with numerology and his sister-in-law, Martha DuPont, believed he was mentally ill, which is kind of an understatement. John denied he had any problem and refused to get any assistance. Another thing is he also he also thought that Disney characters were talking to him through his walls. So he, he would like literally be up in the morning in their like the the space where they would like practice and things like that. And he'd just be sitting with Dave Schultz and these other wrestlers. And he'd just be like telling them that Mickey Mouse was talking to him through the walls. And that was just like that was just a thing. That was just a normal thing that they got used to is he would just say shit like that. Michael DiCondio recounted these events with John DuPont. He called me distraught and I arrived at the house and he's pissed drunk. His foot is up on the table with the tiniest scratch on it, and he's convinced that he was cut badly and needed medical help, but all I needed was a band-aid. He made me drive him to the family's hospital, the Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children, all the way in Delaware. I sat in the waiting room while he got fixed up, brought him home, and then I left. I'll never forget the day when we were training at Foxcatcher, and all of a sudden John walks in in full police uniform with his bright fluorescent orange Asics running shoes on, and... He has a loaded gun in his hip. 
and he begins to tell us, I'm the honorary chief of police of Newton Square. And then he pulls out this gun and shows it to us and starts waving it around, saying, the safety's off. Don't worry about it. John transformed Foxcatcher Farms into prisons for everyone. He had razor wire installed all along the house and armed guards patrolling the estate. He rode in a tank throughout the estate grounds. He also developed a phobia of the color black, believing it was a sign of death, which caused him to kick out three African-American wrestlers in 1996 from Foxcatcher. So he eventually hires a, a security detail. And not only does he hire a security detail, but just to, just to patrol the area and keep them safe or whatever, but he also has them do all these weird little tasks. Like he has them like rent out like an excavator and just start digging up the, the estate to prove that there's not an underground network of tunnels, like of people like secret spies who've built tunnels underneath his estate to like spy on him. I mean, that kind of sounds like my dream scenario. I'd love to have a giant palatial mansion where I just have like weird secret bunkers and like secret underground passageways and like bookshelves where you pull a book and then secret doorway. Well, to John DuPont, that was his worst nightmare because he thought that Goofy was like hanging out in there watching him jerk off or whatever. And yeah, and in 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 the most and one of the more disturbing aspects of this pre murder, he developed a phobia of the color black, which like, okay, fine. He didn't want he he refused any black cars or clothing to be on his estate. And it's like, okay, cool. Like people have phobias. You're scared of the color black. You don't want black shirts or whatever. But he took it to the literal degree that he didn't want black people anywhere near him. Which is hilarious because black people aren't the color black. Well, yeah, that, that's what that's what makes me think it wasn't actually a fear. He was just racist because yeah, black people aren't black. So if so if you have a, a genuine phobia of the color black, then a black person shouldn't trigger that because they're not actually black. It's just like a misnomer. Like white people aren't actually white and black people aren't actually black. So it almost seems like a weird reverse engineered thing where he just wanted to be racist, so he made up a phobia. I mean, I don't know, man. The guy's got schizophrenia. I don't I don't know how in control he is. So yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know what's going on there. Despite the complaints and lawsuits, police and sports organizations took no action against John DuPont. He was made an honorary Newton Township officer, regularly provided the local law enforcement agencies with bulletproof vests and held target shooting practices on his property for years. The police viewed his drinking problem as a quote private matter and never received any formal complaints about his behavior. So that's really kind of like the, the telling thing, because the you might assume, and, and certainly the movie kind of makes it out to be this way, that he was this rich dude who tried to build this wrestling training empire, and everyone thought he was kind of a weird dude, but they were kind of fine with him, and then he, like, then, after the fact, started descending into madness, or his mental illness was just exacerbated. But that's actually not true. He he was displaying these really concerning signs decades before he did any of this, before the mid 80s to the early 2000s, which is when this whole ordeal took place. He was already he had he had already done that thing where he pulled a gun on his wife for telling him to turn the volume down on the TV. He had already had these paranoid delusions that there was like people talking to him through his walls or whatever. And everybody was well aware of this. The the, the local police that he was hanging out with all knew these things happened. And they all just kind of were like, eh, just John, just, just a weirdo guy. That's John's thing. He 
if you tell him to turn on the TV, he'll he'll point a gun at your face. That's just kind of his thing, you know? And nobody did anything about it. So, you know, the, it almost kind of like breaks that myth or that trope of somebody who like they just at some point just go off the rails and they're fine one moment. And then out, and then you think that they're totally OK and you have no idea. And then one day they just snap and then they fucking kill you and you could have never seen it coming. Everybody could have seen this coming. Everybody did see this coming. He was allowed, his mental illness was allowed to just grow and fester over a course of 30 years in a vacuum of just nobody doing anything about it. Less, more money, less problems? More money, more problems? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's all like he, green. Green is the only color that matters in this. Well, there, yeah, I mean, there's, there's like a singularity where it's like more money and people will just ignore these like, deeply concerning mental illness issues because you have so much money and you're giving so much money to people. And then there's like the other end of the spectrum where you're so poor and in such abject poverty that you can't attain the the help that you need for mental illness issues and medical struggles that you're going through. So you, you, you got to be right in that sweet spot where you're like, I, I'm like, I'm not rich enough, but I'm not poor enough that if I start talking about Mickey Mouse, like watching me jerking off, Somebody's going to like there. I'm going to walk into my house one day and there's going to be an intervention. Like I'm, I, I'll just tell you right now, Dave, if you start telling me that Mickey Mouse watches you jerk off at night, I'm going to be like, hey, let's go get some Arby's, man. And then you're going to get in that car. You're going to get in that car. And then you're going to be like, wait a minute. That's not this isn't the way to the Arby's. Wait a minute. Los Angeles insane asylum. The USA Wrestling Association declined to ever sanction Mr. DuPont over allegations by Kevin Jackson over the dismissal of him and other black athletes at Foxcatcher Farms. Because DuPont had become so connected to the wrestling world that it would harm America's chance to win the gold medal at the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympics. Dave Schultz defended John, telling the media that he was not racist. So a couple things. Number one is this just goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the episode with my the, the Eric guy from high school. He got to the point where he was just paying people and people had become so dependent on this money that he was giving them that nobody would do anything about what he was doing like he was he had he had wormed his way into becoming such a important source of money and influence for all wrestling all olympic wrestling in the entire country that they were just like uh it's not racist that he kicked every black person off of his estate and said that he never wanted to see a black person in his presence again he just has a thing about the color black it's just it's just a thing about it's just a thing about the color black it's not a race thing. It's a color but thing. But he can't okay? even he can't even he can't even see race. He can only see color. I mean that that kind of is ex- literally what it was. And I don't there's not really any interviews or anything like that, but I would really wonder what Dave Schultz's rationale for saying that he wasn't racist was. Yeah, it's easy. He was paying my family to be able to live. <laughs> no, I just I mean like I just mean like what was his what was his rationale? What did he say? Ma- yeah ma- like what is, what him. are his actual like no 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 he's really not racist and this is why this is what happens man this is what happens when you're when you're when your buddy says some racist shit and you don't stand up and take a stand to it you get fucking shot that's what happens that's what fucking happens that's what happens every single time and that's why racism is not a problem anymore <laughs> because if you do not stand up against it you get shot it's true we live in a post-race society mm-hmm. dave was john's last offender 
who did his best to help John throughout his emotional struggles and was ultimately his closest friend. On January 26, 1996, Dave Schultz was going to collect his children from school when John DuPont's Lincoln Town Car pulled into his driveway. The driver's side window rolled down and DuPont stuck his arm out, holding a 38 caliber revolver. You got a problem with me? DuPont asked. The first shot fired into Dave's elbow, the second hit his chest, and the third his back. His wife, Nancy, sprinted inside to dial 911. His last words to his wife were, I love you, before dying in her arms. It is not known why John murdered Dave Schultz. John never offered any explanation. DuPont barricaded himself in his house and engaged in a two-day standoff with police before being captured. And basically, this goes back to what I was I, was, I alluded to before. So he shoots and kills Dave Schultz. And then he locks himself in his house and the police come out and they basically spend two days like softball negotiating with him and being like, all right, John, you want to come out? No. All right. We'll check. We'll check back in, the, in a couple hours and see if you want to come out. And they even allowed him. They allowed him to put the hostage situation or not the hostage situation, but the they allowed him to put the standoff on pause at night so he could sleep. So like the, the police literally were like, OK, it's 10 p.m. We'll put this on pause until tomorrow morning. We won't break into your house. We'll leave you alone. Get some rest and bright and early. We'll start this standoff again. And they did this for two days of just like basically doing nothing, just standing out there being like, all right, John, you ready to come out now? No. Can you, can you imagine if this was just like a normal person? No, this would have they would have been they would have just stormed that shit. Exact, exactly. Exactly. But they didn't. Because number one, he was super rich. Number two, he was literally like the police department. Yeah, yeah, he like he like had all this money tied up in the in the local police department. So these people were just like, oh, this guy was like their friend or not their friend, but like the 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 guy who paid them to be his friend. Going back to his childhood. I mean, if there is a way, if there if there if there is a reason to pay people to be your friend, it definitely goes down a lot smoother when they're the police department. Yes. And you pay them to be your friend in a very like integral, corrupt way where it's not just here's a Subway sandwich, but like here's a here's a Kevlar vest sandwich. (laughs) Yes. And yeah, and and this went on for two days and it was highly criticized because it started getting public publicized and people were just like, what the fuck? Get this guy. What are you doing? And people were criticizing it because they thought that they were giving him preferential treatment because he was rich and bankrolling the, the police department. And what they ended up doing at the end of the day, instead of just busting into his fucking house and arresting him, partially because they were a little bit scared because he was like, he had had a small arsenal. But what they ended up doing was they turned off the heat to his house and they just waited until he got too cold and he came out and then they arrested him. So their their, their solution was just like getting a little chilly in there, John. And he's like, ooh, a little nippy in here. (laughs) Might, Might be a little too... Might be a little too chilly in there for our little boy. You ready to come out? We got a nice little warm paddy wagon out here. Yeah, been a little nippy. A little got got a little chill in my bones. And like, all right, that chill in the bones. We can we can warm that right up. We got some we got some hot cocoa out here. We got a nice little blanket. That's how they coaxed this murderer out. It's like the reverse of the like stereotypical movie like guy. In a dark room under the hot lights is where were you on the evening of September the third? It's the exact opposite of that. It's hey, do do you have your jacket? Did you get your jacket, John? <laughs> really, what it was during his trial in 1997, he pleaded not guilty because of insanity. He was found guilty and sentenced to 13 to 30 years, and basically. The- 
it was a, it was kind of a weird split sentencing because the family, Dave Schultz family, understandably, was they pushed for a criminal conviction and many high profile court cases. A lot of the outcome can be determined in the court of public opinion. So they're going out there, they're doing interviews where they're saying that they want John DuPont prosecuted criminally. And there's a lot of people in the community, in the in in the local community and even nationally who are just like, yeah, fucking guy murdered this this national icon put him in prison but on the flip side of that he was genuinely powerfully mentally ill like this was a failing of every person he surrounded himself with that allowed his mental illness to just go off the deep end with no checks and balances and get to the point where he was he was fully gone he was not living on our planet anymore he was he should have been in he should have been in a in a medical facility being treated for schizophrenia or something but he's just living out on a fucking in a on a compound with a bunch of teenagers and like a house full of guns like he he genuinely was mentally ill so what they ended up doing was they ended up giving him kind of a split sentence where he was criminally charged but he was but he was also like halfway found guilty of he got like a half insanity plea. Yeah, halfy. The yeah. legal the legally binding halfy. So so basically because of that, he got a he got a, a thirteen to thirty year sentence instead of a the typical life sentence you would get for some killing somebody like this. John DuPont spent his prison life working as a clerk in the chapel prison. When he died in 2010 at the age of 72, he was totally alone. He was buried in a wrestling singlet with the various awards he had won. In his will, he left 20% of his estate to the Eurasian Pacific Wildlife Foundation and 80% to a Bulgarian wrestler and his family. Larry Schiacitano, president of USA Wrestling, commented that wrestling officials always viewed DuPont as eccentric, but never believed he would be dangerous. Though there is speculation that because DuPont's behavior was so strange, the wrestling organizations would have ultimately severed their relationship with him much earlier, if not for the fact that he was a crucial donor to the sport. Glenn Goodman, who wrestled for Foxcatcher from 1987 to 1992, stated, I feel the whole wrestling community has prostituted ourselves. It wasn't like we didn't know what he was about. We knew, because he brought some big money to the table, I believe we turned a blind eye. In the aftermath of John's actions, Mark Schultz coached MMA and later became a wrestling coach at Brigham Young University. He converted to Mormonism, which he credited with reconciling the past for him. My anger over time has turned to pity, and my pity has turned to compassion for John. I feel like that I've gotten to understand him better. As odd as that sounds about a man who murdered my brother, I can forgive him. Dorothy Jean St. Germain, David's mother, said of her son's death, I figured I'd been a bad mother for him to have been killed this way. Yeah, that that that's a that's a powerful statement because it really just it really just shows how a tragic event like this just rips through a community and affects every single person involved in a life-shattering way. It's not just that he dies and it's sad and you're grieving, but it's Mark Schultz is could I have done a better job convincing him not to go work for this fucking maniac? And his mom is what what could I have done to prevent my son from going in this direction? Surely, surely there's something I could have done to prevent this. And then you have all these people that are involved, the wrestlers who didn't do anything, who were kind of complicit in it because they recognized this concerning behavior and they kind of hand waved it. It just it just rips through people in a in a really tragic way. And it also that 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 last thing kind of reminded me the idea that the wrestling community prostituted themselves and they turned a blind eye because of the money to a much lar- much l- smaller scale 
it kind of reminds me of the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing where Jeffrey Epstein was was a his whole thing was that he was just a rich dude who invested in progressive scientific pursuits. He would just give money to scientists to fund their research into like renewable energy or fucking studying dark matter or wormholes or whatever. And so because of that, because he was just throwing money at all these people that just could not find funding and just historically couldn't get money from anybody for these things, these their research and these things they were trying to do, that for decades, there was so many people that just kind of like it was an open secret that he just did some fucking shady shit. And everyone was just kind of like, yeah, but if I hang out with him, he might give me $30 million. <laughs> if I hang out with him, he, got, he might give me 30 million subways. Yeah. And it just all goes back to that. It all it's it, it's like the universal theory of r- rich fucking maniacs. It's like you let somebody gain financial power over you by doing these small gestures, whether it's buying you subway every day or as this big high profile scientist getting somebody to give you $30 million to fund your research or somebody starting this utopian wrestling society. And it all seems all it seems like it's no strings attached. And you're saying like, oh, I'm just I just want I want you to succeed. I'm passionate about this. But then you you let yourself get under their thumb. And then, yeah, the things like that happen. You 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 ignore somebody's obvious mental illness or you ignore shady shit that they're secretly doing and the weird stuff that goes on the, on on their on their private island or whatever. And you have all these people that are just circumstantially corrupted by the promise of getting this money. Thirty million dollars of way, bruh. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that, that, that was that was what I was going for. I was if I just if I keep hanging out with this guy for long enough. He will give me thirty million dollars worth of subway and I'll be set for fucking life. Yeah, I mean, I think the there's kind of lessons to be learned here in terms of just kind of the way the way the world functions in a lot of ways is the way that Foxcatcher Farms functioned, right? There's always somebody who's trying to just get along and there's always somebody who has a, some sort of trauma that they're trying to work out. And nine times out of 10, those people are the ones in positions of power because that's just the way life works. And it's important to know which one of those two people you are and comport yourself with a sense of responsibility with that stuff. It's it's really It's a really sad fucked up story and what's even weirder about it to me is that they made a documentary and a feature film out of it (laughs) and the same guy directed both the documentary and the feature film which is just quadruply weird yeah i mean it's kind of like the it's kind of like robert durst who the the same guy who made the movie about him that was starring ryan gosling whatever that movie was called good good stuff or whatever it, it, it the movie was named after the health food store that Robert Durst used to own, but it was the movie about Robert Durst. Ryan Gosling played Robert Durst. And then that same director also, I think it was, I think it was called all good things, but that same director made the snitch that, that HBO docuseries. He, he also made that. And basically he formed a relationship with Robert Durst from making the movie. And because he had formed that relationship, he had access to him to do the snitch. Yeah. Very odd. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's just, here's this gripping drama starring Mark Ruffalo and Channing Tatum and Steve Carell about just one of the darkest things you've ever heard. Like this is, this is some fucked up shit. Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm really, I'm saddened by the story. I, I think the moral of the story is therapy. Get some. 
and uh, also like maybe be on antipsychotic pills, anti-schizophrenic pills. I think those might be beneficial to everyone involved. Yeah, and also the promise of some freewheeling rich guy who's just really passionate about the thing that you want to do and just wants to fund it and there's no strings attached. He just really wants to see this thing succeed and so he's just going to give you all this money to do this thing. There's there's always strings attached, even if it's not intentional ulterior motives, even if it's not like the guy has a secret plan to do something fucked up to you. There's the ulterior motives there, or there there's the there's the strings attached of just associating with yourself and having an a unbalanced power dynamic with a person who likely has some darkness in in them just by the very nature of what they're trying to do, which is throw money at a situation to become the de facto god of it. Whether it's starting a utopian wrestling compound, whether it's trying to fund like scientific pursuits, pushing into the realms of renewable energy and space travel, or whether it's just getting some subway after school. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me, you can find me at heydavebaker.com or at xdavebakerx on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on my sprawling palatial estate covered in mansions and fields of the finest planted trees and sports stadiums and swimming pools. And you can find me just locked in my room, jerking off in front of Donald Duck. (laughs) And uh, you can't find me on social media because I don't have social media. But if you want to pay your respects to our dear, sweet, beloved Papa Pricey, you can go to his website, dapricerights.com, where you can get his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join the Facebook group, Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show, episodes, make memes, and other fun stuff. You can also join our Discord server. Go to bit.ly.com slash Discord. You can join that community where we talk about the show, make memes, and also talk about movies and TV shows and other cool stuff. You can follow us on Instagram at DeepCutsPod. You can get merch by going to DeepCutsPod.com, clicking on the shop, or you can get uh, t-shirts and fanny packs and other stuff, hats, coffee mugs. You can also get the new Napster musical cassette release along with full five-page color comic, The Simple Code cassette release which is the entire Napster Napster musical on a cassette but it's packaged with a five page colored Mystery Treehouse comic starring Andrew Dave Hillsmer and Zero that was drawn by Brandon Nebbit colored by Brandon Nebbit written by Papa Pricey with cover colors by Shannon Willette that's available on our website if you go to deepcutspod.com and click on the item on the front page or you can go to bitly.com slash simple code comic the, the, the tape the, the, the tape and the comic together is $12.99 Free shipping within the U.S. Internationally, the shipping can get kind of expensive, but it is available. And if you want to donate to the Dave Baker Subway Fund, go to Indiegogo.com slash Bakeyboy. <laughs>
Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com. This episode, The Foxcatcher Farms Murder, was written by special guest writer Nick Miller. Expect more Deep Cuts episodes written by Nick and other guest writers. If you have a penchant for fascinating true stories and deep research and are interested in writing for the show, email us at andrew at boygeniusmedia.com.